Hey everyone, welcome to another Ruby Rogues episode. I'm David Kimura, and today on our panel we have John. Hello. And we have a special guest today, Zachary Schroeder. Hello. So Zachary, can you tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, why you're famous, and some of the things that you're working on? Uh, sure. I am a human. I am not notable in any particular way. And uh, one of the things I like to talk about or think about is um, doing small projects uh, just for the fun of it. I have a lot of those going on at any one time, and I do like to ask people about projects that they're doing just for their own enjoyment, not to uh, try to make money or, or for a, a work purpose. Um, I think programming is a really fun thing to do in our spare time. And so I, I try to talk to people about that. Cool. Resolve Digital helps build, optimize, and maintain e-commerce, SaaS, and other products built on Ruby on Rails. They can help build new applications from scratch, rescue projects in bad shape, provide ongoing development and maintenance for existing projects, augment your existing team with experienced Rails developers. They also specialize in Solidus and Spree Commerce solutions. Go check them out at resolve.digital. Yeah, I found myself recently working on a new project just for our family. And sadly enough, it's a to-do app. So we need a interactive and synchronizable to-do app just for our grocery list. So when we go to the grocery store, we can kind of divide and conquer. So every app I found has some kind of shortcoming that doesn't really allow that. So it's kind of ironic. Here I am 13 years into my development and then I'm building a to-do list app. So. Yeah, that's pretty great. I mean, the more things change, right? Um, yeah. That's one of the cool things, though, is is having the ability to build something like that for yourself to kind of be able to break out of the offerings that already exist and say, you know, I can do this and it can provide some value to, to me and my family, et cetera. Oh, absolutely. And luckily, there's no shortage of tutorials on this. <laughs> oh, sure. I bet it's hard to Google for. <laughs> Google to-do list app and you're uh, probably inundated, right? Yeah, almost too much information. <laughs> so I think it actually brings up one of points that you brought to the table too, Zachary, right? Because I have considered this question many times and I have always bailed on it because I decided, you know what? It's not worth my time. I will live with this other to-do app that I don't like very much, right? But there's a lot of things out there. To-do apps are a great one. Uh, the one that I've been considering doing for, I don't know, like three months now, right, is the yearly Secret Santa, you know? Got to make an app for that, for the family, right? Because the Secret Santa apps that are out there, you know, we're not happy with, right? And so we're thinking about that. Yeah, I found the Secret Santa apps are mostly just ad delivery mechanisms, at least the ones that you can use without signing up. Yeah, so we're, we had you on the episode today to talk about a recent RubyConf uh, talk that you gave. Would you mind giving us the title and the highlights of it? Uh, sure. So I made a, a small uh, desktop application called Ruby Lo-Fi. You know, it's gone by a couple of names now. And then, of course, the title of the talk was a reference to the Beats to Relax slash Study to uh, meme that you see kind of floating around these days that all tie back to the you know a 24-7 basis. So my goal with the talk was to talk about the thing that I made, which would allow others and myself to make small lo-fi hip-hop beats. And my goal was to implement as much or hopefully all of it using just Ruby and gems and libraries that were available. 
and to provide the sound processing and the graphical interface that would allow you to pull in some samples and create a beat and have it loop and be able to export it as a sound file. So the talk centered around the process of making that, but then it kind of pulled back a little bit to talk about the meta of doing a project. And what I really wanted to do was stress the fact that, um, you know, doing this Ruby lo-fi was really just for fun. And it was uh, something that I wanted to do. And I really think that using our programming skills just to make something that's fun or that we want to make as opposed to something we either have to make for work or something that we're hoping to, you know, make money off of or that kind of thing. Um, just doing it for the sake of doing it can be a really enriching experience. And it was funny that Matt's really stressed the concept of, of finding joy in your programming at his keynote at RubyConf. And, and that really gelled well with, with what I was trying to say about doing projects for ourselves. Cool. So at what point do you go from having a open source or maybe even a small paid program to go into, you know what, I should just create this myself? I guess, and this can open up into another topic we can talk about later about, you know, has everything already been done? But, you know, when you look at the, the wealth of music creation apps out there, even ones that you can use completely for free. GarageBand's a big one for Mac users. Audacity, of course, is a huge open source audio editing tool. And then I know a lot of people who use, I guess it's called FL Studio now or Fruity Loops for making beats and that kind of thing. And uh, when I looked at those offerings, one of my curses, as well as maybe an advantage, is that I have a really short fuse for uh, learning new software, especially for something like FL Studio, which when I open that application, it just overwhelms me with the amount of controls and options and things that you, you know, need and, and want to interact with. So the idea behind maybe trying to make a small version of this was really strip it down to only the elements that I knew I needed. And that was being able to take a sample from a larger track, being able to make a beat apply some audio effects to those things, and then export it as a sound file. So it was in the interest of appeasing someone who may be like myself in that, you know, you open up these applications and there's just, there's dials and boxes and dropdowns inside of dropdowns. And for a short uh, workflow, you really don't need that much, you know, to make something that, that sounds really nice. Quick question for you. So, and I didn't, I didn't notice this when I watched your talk. So if you said it already, I apologize. But you didn't mention anything about having a music background prior to this. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I really don't, as far as I'm concerned. Some dabbling here and there. The app creation idea started with, I had been making uh, a while ago now, maybe a year or two ago, uh, maybe more. I don't know, time flies some things that I would maybe nicely call like sound collages, basically taking little loops from a lot of video game music, chopping them up, applying effects, applying some sound effects, maybe like vocal samples and things, and then merging it all together into some sort of an attempt to be an artsy idea. 
and putting those on Bandcamp. And what I found was I was basically using Audacity to do these chop-ups and stuff. But then when it came to wanting to add beats that weren't already in the sound samples, I was at a loss because, as I said, you know, FL Studio scares me, etc. So I thought maybe I could combine this, this workflow into one step and uh, make something that satisfied it. No, I, th- I think it's awesome that I think you're demonstrating, right? The power of like making something, right? To make a thing that you found completely overwhelming to be accessible, right? Like you, you basically took something that was like way out there, out of arm's reach and just, I watched your thing. It like takes a few seconds to do it. Yeah. And that was, that's sort of the first swing too. I actually am, am experimenting now with some ideas of how to make it even more streamlined so I can, you know, just turn this thing into a factory and crank out these, these little tunes. But yeah. And, and of course, not being able to get into large scale software is, is definitely like a personal thing that I could fix if I wanted to sit down, really learn. A lot of people use these complex audio tools with ease. Once you learn it, you learn it. But, you know, it's just uh, one of those things where I like things to be real simple. And when there's a button that does a thing that you want it to do, it makes me happy. I mean, I think that goes directly to motivation, right? So you wanted to make this because you didn't want to address your sort of like, I don't know, fear, trepidation or whatever it is, right, of the big software. Totally get it, right? Like that's often a motivation for things. Like I, I, I absolutely get it, right? So Shiplane, right? I wrote Shiplane because I was tired and angry about you know how hard it was to do DevOps work, and I was like, it should be easier. I could do it, and I could make myself work at it, right? But I sort of like refused that and decided to. Anyway, the point is, you're making a decision to write software to scratch your own itch. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, the the dual message of talking about this thing and then talking about doing a project in general is, you know, we all have the capability to do this, especially with a language like Ruby, which is, you know, super easy to pick up and the concepts, you know, do not take long to get into, even if you haven't done Ruby before. And outside of being a scripting language or being the language that powers Rails, um, Ruby has this vast ecosystem of gems and and the work that others have done available, you know, to do graphics and to do sound and you know you just have to do a little searching and and it can it can be a great language for making these purpose built applications and and little projects. So beyond your soundbite application that you created, what else are you working on to make life a bit easier or just exciting? Unfortunately, nothing to make life easier. Of course, I'm always looking for that golden egg idea. A lot of my interests lie with audio music, but also spoken word. And for years now, I've been trying to come up with um, some sort of cool, I don't want to use the, the social word, but some sort of collaborative spoken word creation tool. And I haven't really found an idea that works uh, to my liking yet, but I, the quest continues. Other things that I'm kind of working on in my spare time are more and less Ruby specific. Another Ruby project that I uh, have yet to come back to, I really wanted to make um, a Ruby version of HyperCard. And I've talked about that, actually, I talked about that at RubyConf a few years ago, because uh, the concepts around HyperCard, which is some Mac software from the 80s and the 90s, made by uh, a guy named Bill Atkinson and his team, but basically was like 
he he tends to say that it was kind of like the internet before the internet existed because the the focus of the application was to allow content to be hyperlinked between you know cards which were I guess you could think of them as maybe like PowerPoint slides, but on steroids and then between decks of cards. And that's a really cool concept. So I've been trying to do that, but that one's been dormant for a while. And then another thing that's piqued my interest recently is it's open source, but it, the creation of the the public offering was, was spearheaded by a, a small group. I don't know if you've heard of this, this small game system called the Arduino an Arduino uh, processor that's a tiny little game system with a screen, a D-pad, and two buttons. And um, all the schematics and the software are all open source, so you can make your own. And I've been, I've been trying to do that, which, you know, in, in the notes, I made a, a point to ask if Python has MicroPython, which has led to the creation of Python-specific um, hardware chips being made. I wonder if we're going to get to the point where MRuby can uh, drive the creation of a RuBoard, uh, like a Pi board, and, and we can, um, you know, our open source hardware projects with Ruby. So yeah, that's probably where my interest is is focusing right now. Besides continuing to work on Ruby, LoFi is, is messing with this Boy stuff. Awesome. I, I think that would be cool. I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't be upset to see more Ruby games. I actually, I didn't even know for a long time that there was, I, I didn't know of any examples of Ruby games for a long time until, uh, so I got, I think it came with Civilization Six, maybe. I don't know. I, I was always into Civilization for a long time. And there's a Sid Meier's Starships or whatever. which is like a companion game to one of the Civilizations mm-hmm. that I bought someday, off, one time off of Steam. I don't know. That game is written in MRuby. And the only reason I know it is because it blew up one day with basically and basically told me as much so i was like sweet it's got like ruby errors in it but yeah i i didn't i never even heard of any until then yeah and and there's actually multiple libraries that can support graphics and games programming of course for this particular ruby lo-fi project i used a library called ruby 2d and I have a, a couple of notes here, so I don't get anything wrong. It's maintained by a small group, but it's led by a guy named Tom Black. He goes by Black TM on GitHub. And it provides basically everything you'd need to make a 2D game. You know, the loops, or the, the game loop, and then the ability to render shapes and text and to animate things. And it has sprite capabilities and sound and all that kind of stuff. There's another one that's been around for quite a lot longer called Gosu, G-O-S-U, um, and that actually is what I'm experimenting with uh, right now just to continue working on Ruby Lo-Fi because Ruby 2D is great and very simple, but I found for some reason or another, it uh, really puts a lot of strain on the fans or on the processor of my computer and the fans spin up really high whenever I'm running a Ruby 2D program. But using Gosu, that hasn't happened. So I'm sure it's user error and I should do some more research, but there's a possibility that Gosu is like a little closer to the metal or, or however you might want to say that. Yeah, I played around with Dragon Ruby for a bit, which is just a 2D game engine for Ruby, but you are able to essentially make desktop applications. So it just uses the standard Ruby and it's pretty cool. I did an episode on it on Drift and Ruby a while back, but it can do quite a bit of things. Yeah, and what I mean, you know, the, a lot of the concepts that you use with games programming, just the tiny little bit that I've done, translate almost directly from any other kind of environment you've been working in. 
And I really like the Ruby angle just because it is uh, darn simple, especially when your loops are blocks and you know you're you just have your draw loop and you can you can write some simple Ruby in there. Of course, I who knows about performance? I haven't ever tried to to stress test anything in that way. But <laughs> yeah, uh, you said Dragon. I don't think I've heard of that one. I should definitely put that on the list to investigate, though. Yeah, it's produced by the same company who's currently managing Ruby Motion the iOS and Android library. So it's pretty cool. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to check it out just from the purposes of being able to see as many of them as possible. But, you know, that that goes back to my point about the ecosystem is out there. You know, I think a lot of people wouldn't even know that there was one library for doing graphics with Ruby, let alone three and definitely more than that. So sweet. So now that game that you always wanted to make, but you didn't make it because you were doing it Ruby. Now you can do it. Exactly. Yeah. You can break out of the, I guess, I don't know. What do people, what do people usually use as their first like intro to games programming? Snake? <laughs> uh, like which, which language or which environment? Oh, I, I don't I don't know. I, I think. Unity maybe? What is that? C sharp? Yeah. I feel like a lot of people are doing that. I definitely have had like two or three people like that I've like mentored like for short periods of time come to me with like they wanted to do stuff in JavaScript. And I can't really separate that from JavaScript just being popular here in Charlotte, you know? So, yeah, it would, I mean, you know, it'd be a, a good language to do it in if, if you wanted to target the web for sure, because it's kind of like drag and drop in that way. But yeah, it's, uh, I don't also know anything about JavaScript games programming libraries. Um, I'm sure there are some good ones that exist, maybe even with uh, TypeScript support. I don't know that answer either. <laughs> I mean, their their goal was they were they were fairly early on. This was like one of their early on right. ideas of things they wanted to try. Yeah. Well, here and just as an aside, I won't distract us with it. But another thing that I would like to get into that I've dabbled a little bit with is programming on the original DMG Game Boy, doing assembly program for its its modified Z80 uh, processor. So I followed a tutorial to get a basic little like 2D game going, writing the game as I would imagine people actually did, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. It's, uh, it's definitely a, a, a very different way of programming than I, than I do for everything else in my life. So what, what kinds of things do you want, like to do? So, so clearly you have this successful project but you also have projects that are not done. What, what would you say are the things that you like to do? Yeah, I spend a lot of my precious spare hours working on coding stuff. And usually it's on something that I already have going in the pipeline. Um, just on my GitHub, I have a bunch of half-finished or you know quarter, or like 1% finished projects, and I'll just kind of jump in and, and work on one of them. That would be probably where most of my spare time is spent. Um, I do like to play games once in a while, but I haven't been doing that as recently. I think after getting really frustrated with uh, Apex Legends, I kind of hung up the gaming for a while, but I do have a, a Nintendo Switch, and so I've, I'm looking forward to um, playing Doom Eternal on that because uh, I had a lot of fun playing uh, Doom 2016 on the Switch. If it's my sort of paradigm of I'll pick it up and play for 10 minutes and then put it down again. And I found, as opposed to PC gaming, the Switch really enables that that kind of behavior. 
It's fair. I need to break out my Wii again. I have the original Wii. So that's like before the Switch, before the Wii U. Mm-hmm. And I love playing Mario Kart on there. Yeah, we never had... Um, my only real memories of uh, the the Wii are, are playing you know, Wii Sports at, at friends' houses and stuff. I do now have one in a box in the basement that I haven't dusted off in years. But yeah, Mario Kart really hit its stride with the Wii. I have the Switch version, but I think that's just a re-release of the Wii version or possibly the Wii U version. I'm not sure. I don't know. My kid is three. And I mean, we're we're hoping to like stave that off for a while. Oh, sure. Yeah. If we can. That's good. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know. Try, I'll to, report, try to, yeah. <laughs> I'll report back at how successful I am. Try to encourage like, you know, print and, and spoken word, I guess. I don't know. Is that the general philosophy there is try to avoid introducing the screens before it's absolutely like inevitable? Well, I, I'm not going to pretend that we've never given him a screen, right? I mean, because, I mean, shoot, half of our culture is online and in videos now, right? But definitely spend a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. It's um, a struggle. It's a struggle. And and of course, I, I catch myself doing it and my wife catches me doing it as well of like just pulling out the phone to like check this thing or check that thing. And it's it definitely is not necessary to be checking the phone. So often I'll, if I feel like I can't avoid doing it, I'll just put it in a place where I am not in and, you know, uh, out of sight, out of mind kind of philosophy there. Yeah, I have three kids, so we go through those same same kind of struggles, John. And well, what I realized was we would grab our phone. If there was a question we just didn't know the answer to, we were just so quick to pick up our phone. And it, it really is a problem because you're paving the way for your kids to see that, oh, it's okay to just grab your phone and just ignore everyone around you whenever you want. So we were at the dinner table one day and we were talking about venomous snakes. And my daughter said, can a snake bite itself and die? I'm like, I have no idea. So I started pulling out my phone and my wife was like, David, we don't need to know that answer right now. I'm like, no, you're right. And so uh, it turns out, no, they can't. They have a protein that they have evolved into that makes them impervious to their own snake bites. Whoa. Well, just in case if you were wondering. No, that's very um, important. I actually have a question in in regards to, you both mentioned that you have children. Do you plan on attempting to encourage a, a pursuit of your own interests as far as programming or tech goes? Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to be totally honest. I want to expose my kid to it, but I I don't know. Like, to me, I think that... So so first of all, I think this kind of is a philosophical question because I think that programming at the end of the day is just problem solving with the constraint that you want the computer to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, the valuable thing in, in programming in general is the problem solving aspect. So of course, I want my kid to learn that for sure, right? Yeah, but if he chooses to not be a professional programmer, I definitely am not going to be upset in any way. And then, of course, you always have to wonder if it's gonna, if you do want to encourage that, and then it backfires, and you know, because your parents tell you something is cool, and you, you know, I don't want to speak for all kids, but I know that there can be a tendency to to want to go in the opposite direction. Then, 
I mean, I definitely am going to be picking up like those those games for kids to like learn programming, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it, he's like almost at that phase where I feel like we're we're going to be like actively looking. But those things are like always changing and getting better. Yeah, my kids are six, five, and three. They're right now at the age where they can start doing some of the really cool things. So I got my daughter a Lego We Do kit. And essentially, it is a Lego uh, stem kit that you can build Legos. It has some motors. And then you connect it to an iPad. And on the iPad, you can do some scratch-like ladder, ladder logic-based programming to perform different functions. And they have a bunch of different tutorials to follow and stuff. And she loves doing that kind of stuff. And it's getting her introduced not really so much into programming, but it is just building these subliminal concepts behind it on conditional loops or endless loops, ladder logic, like if-then-else. So it's pretty cool. And this is your six-year-old, five-year-old? My six-year-old, yep. Okay, so a little bit more time. My son is just discovering the magic of building a thing and the feeling that comes with having successfully made something himself, right? Which is it's a great yeah. feeling. It's a step. It's a step. Yeah. See, my my son, kinda, he's a five year old. Yeah. He skipped that phase entirely, and then went straight to finding the joy of destroying other people's things. <laughs> well, he has an older sister to make them for him. To be fair, <laughs> as a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up, and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. So... We could probably discuss. We could probably discuss the magic of of children discovering these concepts for forever. Because let's be fair, it's awesome. But okay, so it seems like there's some interest in 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 games here and stuff. But you didn't necessarily. And this is kind of getting back to kind of what your presentation as well. Because one of the things that you noted was you're like, look, maybe you don't have a cool idea. Maybe you get an idea from elsewhere. It kind of seems like. You're interested in lo-fi, but that isn't the thing that you kind of described that you're the most interested in. It's just, I don't know, you scratched a niche or whatever. I didn't know if you wanted to talk more about like finding a project. Is that is that the way that you do it? You're just like, eh, I had a niche and that's what I work on. Yeah, you know, and, and that is one thing that I've, I've thought a lot about is, you know, where do our good ideas come from? And even now I just used that loaded term of good I think there's been a lot of things that I thought, oh, that would be cool if I worked on that. But then, you know, internally in my own mind, shot it down because it wasn't quote unquote, like a good idea or, or even further, it's an idea that, you know, someone has already done. 
or something like that. But, you know, I think we all kind of walk around every day, programmers, non-programmers, and, and just think about things that we wish would exist or, you know, huh, I wonder if that exists or I wonder if, and programming is a really neat and cost-effective way to get into the realm of actually trying to do something about an idea that you have, you know, doing a little bit with hardware and, and um, definitely still a novice in that regard. There's a lot of upfront investment you have to make components and, you know, you make mistakes and that means that you burn up components and you have to get new ones. Programming is, you know, for a relatively insignificant upfront investment on just a machine that can run Ruby or Python or something like that. You know, you can build and destroy coming back to, you know, the, the child thing again, you can build something up and tear it down as many times as you want. And, you know, it's a, it's a very cost effective way of, of experimenting and indulging one's creativity. I imagine that as programmers, you know, people come to you for IT help and then you have to explain why those are two different fields of study. But, you know, people have good ideas and people have ideas that, you know, have never occurred to me or you or one of the things that I mentioned in the in the talk is if you want to make a little project, but you can't seem to find an idea that feels right or whatever, just ask some people because like I said, we all every day, huh, I wonder if this exists or you know, I wonder if a snake can bite itself. Well, that is uh, more of a Google question, but, you know, if you want to get into games programming and someone mentions that snakes themselves, maybe there's something to explore there. Maybe you create Snake V2 where the goal is to try to bite yourself, but for whatever reason, you can't. <laughs> All right. Imagine it. Imagine the snake getting longer and longer, but every time you tried to intersect yourself, it would like bend out of the way, and you had to do some particular set of of inputs in order to lick your body into not uh, dodging out of the way of your bite. I feel like there's definitely some game designer questions here. That's a free idea. Anyone <laughs> uh, get out there and, and make uh, the game could be called. Bite, bite myself or something. Uh, I also can't come up with good titles. Bite me. Oh, good. Very good. Okay. It, but it sounds, I guess one of the things that I thought was interesting was it kind of sounded like your main interest. You didn't, you didn't jump after your main interest or whatever, sort of, for making something. It was something yeah, sort of, you were interested in, sure. but less so. I just thought it was interesting. Tangential. Yeah. And um, I have no, you know, you hear kind of the phrase and it can be good and bad and, and you know, however you feel about it, but um, uh, jack of all trades, master of none or, or something. I have a very short attention span, even in my own project work. So, you know, when I find something that holds my interest enough to bring a project to version 0.1, like Ruby Lo-Fi, you know, that's great. That's a win for me because normally I'll, I'll be working on that and, and seven other, th not seven, maybe two other things will be like, huh, well, I started doing this, but maybe I want to do this or it led me to Google this and then I realized that this exists and I'm going to try that. So yeah, I, definitely I, I, I have a lot of shallow interests, but I'm always envious of people also who have one very deep interest and are able to dive down into the depths of a topic. Did you have any things on your mind, Dave? I've asked a bunch of questions in a row. No, I've, I've been enjoying the conversation. So That's fair. is there anything else? I have a question for you guys. Yeah. Do you think that it would be possible 
or we'd be able to get people involved if, do you know about Grateful Dead and how as there was this whole circle of people around the country and around the world who would mail each other bootlegs and recordings of the Grateful Dead over snail mail, um, either on cassette tape or that kind of thing. I learned about this via an article one time, just this huge group exists and, and you would have to get on the list or by knowing someone or by finding someone who had the list, then this distribution, kind of ad hoc distribution would happen of, of these bootlegs and tapes and things. And I was wondering if it'd be possible to make something like that, but that centered around programming much in the way that you might send off for if you're a Commodore 64 user in the 80s or 90s that you would send off for some cassette tapes with programs on them. I was just thinking it'd be really cool if we could get like, have people like mailing programs around via snail mail around the country via some sort of distribution list. Does that sound like a crazy idea or is that something that would I, I don't know. I just I, I think people like getting <laughs> physical objects in the mail and we could somehow it wouldn't necessarily have to be on a tape, maybe on a, a USB, maybe on a on a, some sort of nice framed poster. I don't know. So we're mailing the program themselves, not the hardware. Yeah, it's still up in the air. It could be either at this point, but I'm just really tickled by the idea of having this list. At one point, actually, for the those sound collages I was talking about, I wanted to make a website that was literally just like, send me your address and I'll mail you a tape full of junk. And sort of like that, but maybe we could like build up and then as this uh, storage medium, USB or something got sent around, people would add some sort of program or group of files that they like to it and then copy it and send it on and sort of through the mail, build up some sort of weird repository of like Ruby programs and, and Ruby poems and stuff like that. Hmm. And if, if somebody said, can you ask people? Yeah. I like, I like this virus that I'm just going to add to this USB drive. <laughs> like that's, well, it could be, it could be a sandboxed, you know, a Ruby program, <laughs> someone on the distribution list yeah. would one have to trust everyone enough to put their, their name to it. But two, I don't know, has anyone True. ever written a virus that gets to you through executing Ruby? I guess maybe if you just run shell commands for a minute. I was thinking if you put it on a USB drive and somebody put it in there. Oh yeah. Computer. Yeah. All right, so or, uh, USB's out. We're doing tape only. So everybody get your cassette tapes out. Yeah. And uh, yeah. That guy, he ruined all of our fun. <laughs> My thought was a USB killer. Have you never seen one of those? It's basically a USB drive that has a built-in high-voltage capacitor that gets charged up and it'll fry whatever device you plug it into. <laughs> oh, God. Uh. All right, this idea will take some more thinking. Um, <laughs> USB must is is obviously not the way to go. Uh, I'll keep working on it. Yes, yes. Hey, QR that's in from. <laughs> okay, I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting and cool ideas out there. I I definitely would agree with you, right? Like uh, in my mind, it's sort of the plethora of people trying things, like trying to create this, you know, USB mailing list and discovering <laughs> that. Not everyone is on the same page, you know. You know, people people do that all the time with things, and you know, then that's sort of how we, you know, kind of filter out the bad ideas. Slash, you know, people learn from that and make the idea better, you know, in some cases. So, 
Yeah. And, you know, we have access now to GitHub and, and other things like that, that allow you to put something out there and have people iterate on it just because they want to. I'll be honest, after my talk, uh, and I came off the stage and um, talking to a few people who had already checked out the GitHub. And then within a couple hours, someone had already made a, uh, a pull request. And that was the first pull request that previously a stranger, obviously I know him now, but a stranger had yeah. made to a project that I had put on GitHub. And it felt awesome. It's like, oh, wow, that's really cool. It doesn't have to be a big or expensive project. It doesn't have to be this huge, you know, you don't have, like I said uh, in the talk, you don't have to be trying to make Facebook or, you know, Facebook V2 or anything like that. Just like a small little thing. And there's always a niche of people who will be interested in it and, uh, you know, might want to know about it or to help you out with it. And it's worth a shot regardless. I've been doing little projects for many, many years and, you know, finally got that that first pull request on my project. But the the previous five to 10 years before that, of course, mostly working in, in isolation. That, that, I mean, that's another good plug, right, for conferences like Ruby and RailsConf, right? Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of people there. If you give a talk or a lightning talk or something like that, right, you have a, a shot at somebody there being interested at the thing that you're doing, and then you just end up making a connection. Yes, absolutely. And, and one piece of advice I would give with that especially for lightning talks, which are really fun and uh, require almost no preparation, is make sure your contact information is displayed very large and multiple times uh, throughout the, the amount of time you have available. Because I never noticed how quickly I would breeze through like, oh, this is my contact information. Okay, bye. People want to contact you and they need to know how. So if you're ever giving a lightning talk or a full talk, Make sure you give everyone plenty of time to write down, at the very least, your your GitHub handle or your email address, because there are probably a lot of times where someone thinks, oh, I should send them a note. Oh, I don't remember what their their information was, etc. That's a good point. And Confreaks is amazing, but it still takes them a few weeks, right, to get your video up and somebody might have forgotten in that time. Sure. Yeah. It's the immediacy thing. You know, we're all used to uh, uh, scrolling Instagram now. So if it's not there, we, we don't remember it. But it's actually funny because the connections that you make are weird. So I gave a lightning talk last year and some dude that I went to high school with that I had no idea was programming Ruby, right, was there. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, it was fun. Yeah, no, that's great. And uh, part of the, you know, one of the things I mentioned during the talk is that I started going to RubyConf in in 2014, and I've been every year since then. And it's just a, a great, great old time. Of course, it does require some financial investment if if your company doesn't want to send you or something like that. But you know, if if you can make it even to a local group, a local conference or a local user group, you never know who you're going to meet. You're never going to know like what kind of ideas come up or where it might lead. So definitely it's worth getting out there and into the community for that reason. Dave, we should get your take on this too, because I've, I've spent the $600 to go to RailsConf, right? Plus whatever my other things, you know, cost me or whatever every year for... Mm, Atlanta might have been the first RailsConf that I went to. I don't know. It was around that year. I have yet to gone to a Ruby conference, Ruby or Rails. I find myself, you know, just especially with three kids and all, time is really, really valuable. And I would love to go out and make connections. Now, I really wanted to go to the past couple of Rails conferences, but some 
scheduling conflict always has come up. So I think as programmers, or, you know, and I'm speaking at least for myself, I tend to be an introvert. So going to a conference definitely can be scary. But of the kind of techie conferences that I have gone to in the past, this is my pre Ruby days when I lived up in Ohio, I would go to the Linux conference. They were a lot of fun. And I honestly don't know why I haven't gone to a conference lately other than scheduling conflicts. So but, I, I definitely wasn't trying to like shame you. I just was curious. So it sounds yeah, why like haven't you gone? <laughs> we demand a, to know. So it's a time investment thing for you. You haven't been able to find the time. Or you had scheduling conflicts, which caused a problem with your time. Yeah, either with work or kids or you know. With life, you're always going to be able to find a reason why you can't do something. So I really just need to quit making <laughs> excuses and to just schedule and do it. So my wife's extremely supportive of me. At first, it was hard, you know, when I was spending 10 hours a day on the computer programming and learning and stuff. But over time, that has decreased and she's become more supportive of me going to our local Ruby meetup every month. So that's something that I have been diligent in doing. And it's really good just going out and making those physical connections, not just knowing someone's screen name uh, behind a computer, but actually being able to meet, greet, and shake hands. Yeah, especially, you know, even if the conversation is just introductions and, and chatting about, you know, local weather or whatever, it, it's great to, to meet people who share common interests. I would agree. By the way, shout out Ohio. That is where I'm from. Oh, yeah. What parts? Uh, Northwest. Uh, the nearest larger cities okay. are like Lima and Finley. Um, but Toledo is like the biggest city a lot of people not from Ohio have heard of in the area. Okay. I spent some time up in Sandusky oh, okay. uh, yeah. going to Cedar Point. So oh, yeah. I know I, that's like the one of the few times I've been up that way. But I was at Ohio State University in Columbus. Oh, hey, me too. So I had a last thing that I really wanted to ask you about, Zachary, and that was you kind of had placed a question in, in our notes, has everything worth doing already been done? And I kind of want to talk about it, I guess. Sure. Yeah. It really kind of confuses me when I try to think about the world of specifically programming and, and computing and you know how many lines of code in general, do you think have been written in the world since the the dawn of computing? Uncountable. And often when I try to think of things that I would like to do or maybe come up with an idea, inevitably, it's been thought about, it's been done. You know, the thing that I often think about is why do I let that discourage me from pursuing things that I have an interest in? And it has, you know, oh, I have this idea for an app. Oh, that already exists. Never mind. I'm not even going to try. I want to maybe saying it out loud will help me get over that as well of like, have you ever had a problem that you're, you're, you're writing some code for work or for, for fun and uh, some piece of an algorithm, or you're not quite sure how to do this one thing. I imagine there's many different kinds of approaches, but sometimes I'm almost hesitant to look up or Google it because I want to know that I thought of it myself, the answer to this particular question. Even though 
I know in the back of my head that there's definitely an answer and someone has optimized the answer and I could move on if I would just, you know, look, but, and that kind of balloons outward to, to hobby projects and, you know, ideas. And is always this thing of like how one approaches the fact that, you know, the solutions are out there and, and how one, you know, interacts with that, that knowledge. So I guess the question uh, to you guys that I would have along that topic is, is twofold. One, you know, when you have a problem that you're pretty sure you could Google, how quickly do you go to the, to the keyboard? And two, have you ever experienced this, this um, kind of negative idea of, well, that's been done before, so I don't need to do that or I shouldn't bother doing that. Have you had that experience before? Because um, I found it to be kind of discouraging, you know, in, in my own head. I would say for me, well, I guess let me preface it with nothing that you can or all inventions that have been created have already been invented. So essentially, there are a lot of things in this world already. But I think as humanity goes, we have maybe tapped into one-tenth of the percent of all inventions that will ever be created by by humans. So I think that there is still so much room and it's really a matter of time before new inventions are made. Just think back to computers themselves. 10, 15 years ago, if I wanted to stand up a server, I would download an Ubuntu ISO and I would install Apache on there, PHP, MySQL, and I would you know, host a website. Then it turned into, okay, well, I can virtualize all these machines and containers and have these containers up and running. They're isolated virtual machines running a full-blown operating system. And now more lately, we're seeing a shift with Kubernetes, where, you know, don't have virtual machines, have pod containers. So things will evolve and shift as we go throughout the course of history. But for me, if I see something that already exists, sometimes I would say, you know what, they already have that market or they're already doing it, but I have my own interpretation of it. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with recreating something in your own idea. But you know, I think that's very different from blatantly plagiarizing someone else's idea. And I think Drift and Ruby is a good example of that. You know, there were Railscast videos. Avdi Grimm has his Ruby Tapas. I know Chris Oliver has the Go Rails. And one could say, like, okay, well, those it's already done. This space has been taken, but I still continue every week to publish a new video on the Ruby language. And there is a following and there is a desire for more and more content, even if that content already exists elsewhere or if I'm just putting my own unique spin on it. I think that's a really positive way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, I, I would argue a lot of the same thing, right? I'm totally the dude that comes after you, Zachary, that's like, seriously, you rolled authorization again, right? Instead of using device, right? And and because you did like, and then I'm upset because I'm like, oh, you totally have this insecure, you know, problem, right? Because you rolled it and didn't have the expertise, right? Like, 
not beating up on you in particular, I just mean, I feel like when you default to rolling your own, you sometimes wade into waters that are too deep for you, right? At the same time, like, I think there's a perfectly fair counter to that, which is like, I tend to, okay, so I have a new problem. The first thing that I do is I go, okay, let me see if there's a gem out there for that, right? And I go look and I try and decide, do I think that this gem is a quality gem that I'm going to like to use? Do I feel like it's going to bring value to my project? You know, but, but the, the truth is like, I'm reaching for a gem first, right? So I'm, I'm looking for other people's work first before I build it myself. And I don't know, maybe my gem files are bigger or something, but I, I think that that's like a constant sort of thing that we're all trying to balance, right? Like, which things should I pick for that? Which things should I grab somebody else's stuff for? And I don't know, got to make a decision. To the gem point, um, just, you know, as far as the talk goes, um, taking in Ruby 2D and taking in Ruby-audio, I definitely did go the route of, uh, I'm sure someone has done this, but at the same time, it's like, well, if I were were a good programmer, I would just think about it and then write it down without, you know, but to what you were saying, yeah, people who have gained experience can uh, have more depth of knowledge than you, authentication being one one realm, audio being another. But anyway, I apologize for interrupting. No, you're fine. And I definitely didn't say it clearly. Let me, let me try like one more time. I think we're actually all a lot closer to the middle than it looks like, right? Some of us might default to one side or the other, and you might choose in a particular instance to roll something on your own, right? Or I might choose in a particular instance to pull from a gem when I very well could have written it, right? And it might have ended up being better, right? But I I think for the most part, we all kind of stick closer to that middle than we do to the extremes, if that makes sense. We typically pull from both directions. Sure, absolutely. Do you ever feel that? Oh, the the second part of of my question was how quickly do you guys how how long do you give yourself when you're thinking about a problem that you have not yet solved before you go uh, to Google? I would be totally honest. If it's an error message, I'm probably going to Google first, right? And then those those few seconds that I'm switching windows and typing in really is is the amount of time that I'm giving myself, right? To to kind of rack my brains to see if I like know the passive figure out the error, right? And I might abandon during my Google searching, but typically I'm not giving myself a lot of time because most error messages in Ruby are pretty fast to look up. So it's for like, I don't know, a time risk scenario, right? Like I'm trying to risk as little time as possible. That's just how I've done it. Yeah, and I come from my earlier days of programming when there was no internet. And you just had to bang your head against the keyboard until you figured it out. And so usually I will trip over myself for a little bit before I go to Google. But that's just my historic, you know, the way I learned. But seeing how once I've thought through the issue to try to figure out, okay, what could the issue be and try to solve it myself, if I'm still stuck then I think Google is a resource that we should use. Now, I know you're not saying don't use it, but just how quick do I turn to? So usually once I've exhausted my own knowledge set, then I'll turn to Google. Oh yeah, definitely. Me too. Yeah, and really it's an open-ended question that I'm just a little curious about. Definitely don't think there's one good way to, to write programs. And however anyone's 
style works, that that's totally fine as far as that goes. I'm I'm definitely a quick Googler myself or Stack Overflow searcher, I guess, which doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. But I have found in situations where I have really sat and forced myself to think from first principles to where I'm at now, what might be going wrong or what am I missing? They can provide really good learning opportunities as long as the time is available. So to add on to that, right, as a quick Googler, I think that having a gut sense of where things are coming from and understanding what you think is going on, for one, helps you in your Google searching to narrow down things, right? But number two, because I go to Google first, I actually remember the times when Google ran out of knowledge, right? When, <laughs> when I'm basically four or five, you know, Stack Overflow things later, and I'm like, huh, seems like maybe somebody's encountered this before, but they didn't use the same language or whatever it is, I can't find it. And so then I'm reverting back to my own knowledge. And sometimes that means that I'm going back and trying to dig up more information and then going back to Google. But oftentimes it means that I'm going back and digging through till I find my own answer. And I think there's something to say about the danger of just resorting to Google really fast because we can run into situations where we don't quite fully even understand the problem well enough. We just see an error message, but we don't actually understand what could be even potentially causing it. So I think just searching for on Google right away without even trying to fully grasp what the problem is, it's almost like having the cheat sheet on an exam and without really trying to rack your brain on what the correct answer is, you're almost robbing yourself of some learned experience. I agree. Yeah. And one one example of this that I experienced recently was, and it wasn't an error message, it was just trying to think algorithmically, just doing a little 2D games programming and trying to imagine myself how velocity, downward gravity velocity would work and trying to program it in without going to Google and typing, you know, gravity formula for games programming or something like that. I think I think I eventually went to Google because I was missing something as far as, you know, meters per second per second or something like that. But it's a it was a great display of this particular problem of like I I just need to sit and think about this and, you know, use what I know already, maybe look up just from a science book, like the formula for, for gravity and acceleration and that kind of thing. But I think eventually in the interest of, of moving on, but that can lead. And I know um, I don't want to keep talking for too long, although I'm still talking right now is, you know, stuff like that. I wanted to get this gravity working for this character in this game because I had so much other stuff that I actually wanted to be thinking about. Like, you know, the what kind of attacks this little character had or the enemies and that kind of thing. And I think that translates to like other kinds of programming too. Let's say a Rails app, you know, you're getting this one particular active record error. And it's like, I should sit down and think about this and figure it out because it will increase my knowledge. But really it's blocking me from doing these things that I, I know I actually need to be doing or I want to be doing and that kind of thing. But it's a perennial question. I mean, I'm sure we could we could talk about it for a long time. Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, the thing that I am mostly taken away from what you're saying is that our sort of uh, different, chaotic kind of pursuit of the things that interest us, right? Yes. That's, yeah, absolutely. That's like just healthy. 
Yeah. And have it, yeah, it gives you interesting things. Well, interesting is subjective. It gives you a lot to talk about at a party or um, on a podcast. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things here. I definitely agree with that. One final thing I, I think about a lot is how far up on the, there's a term for it, but there's, I imagine like a big triangle of at the bottom, there's electrons and basic circuitry, and then it builds all the way up to an iPhone. And I've seen people talk about how like, when you're using your iPhone, you are so far separated, or rather people programming their Commodore 64 was, were so much closer to the, the hardware than we are. We feel almost, we can, we can feel almost like alienated from the machine because we sit so high up on this huge technology stack. It's the same thing I feel with um, using like Heroku, for example. Uh, yeah, I, I deployed some code, but I'm so far removed from the actual act of, you know, managing these things that I'm on a whole, whole nother planet. I think about that a lot. Oh, man. I think that's a whole discussion in and of itself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I love delegation. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. But don't you ever feel like, I wish that I was the master of this domain and you could ask me about any part of this and I would be able to respond because I'm the one that built it, you know, like that, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, sure. But I also feel a pull, right, to be able to do a lot of things that I'm interested in, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, like, yeah. I mean, time often, right, is the resource that I have the least amount of. And so, so for me... I feel pulls in multiple directions and I know that I can't do everything. So it's, it's hard to master multiple domains. Let's be fair. You kind of, you really only get a handful of things that you can maybe theoretically master and everything else is just going to have some, some level less than mastery. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And mastery is takes, well, as long as you have available, I guess you're never really done becoming an expert at something. Yeah, and there's always going to be a give and take. You know, if you want to be a master of two things, well, something else has to give. And it could be time with your spouse or your kids or uh, lack of concentration at work or whatever the it is for you. Yep. Very well said, well, yes. Well, Zachary, if people want to find out what you're doing and how they can reach out to you on the internet... Where should they go? Well, I don't really do social media in any in any way, mostly because I of a, of a conscious decision. But I do have a GitHub where Ruby LoFi and all of my other little partially done projects are. My GitHub handle is uh, pretty easy to remember. It's Robo Bluebird. Imagine uh, a bluebird that is a robot. So it's a Robo Bluebird. That's where all of my my code experiments live. Awesome. awesome. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. Well, I'd say let's move on to picks if we don't have anything else. John, do you want to start us off? I can do so. All right. So my first pick for this week, if I can get this pulled up, is going to be another, probably my last scotch. I was digging through my, my cabinet and I was like, well, I can't, I can't just like recommend 
every scotch in my cabinet because I don't like every scotch in my cabinet. But so this is my, this is my last on my list. This is like like my third favorite scotch in my cabinet. It's pretty awesome. So it's called Le Gouvelin. It's a 16 year. It's known for being probably like the most exceptionally peaty scotch that like you. Can, I'm sure there's more, but it's it's specifically known for being super peaty. So if you this is kind of the taste that Scotch is known for. It's it's a super strong, smoky taste. If you like the taste of like the fire pit, you know, smoke in your mouth, that's what this tastes like, kind of. But it's pretty awesome. It's it's not a harsh drinker. Um, it, it's just good. It, it's probably not what you go to bed with, but it goes really well with like food and things like that. So um, it's one of my favorite ones. So got that. And then I also did not realize, I don't know why I didn't realize, I didn't realize how important having a good chair was, um, good office chair. And I'd had my office chair for about 15 years and it was a hand-me-down before that. And I just replaced it because I I got a bruise on my rear end um, from the old chair. And yeah, it's it has definitely changed my posture and all these things. So I guess my pick is technically get a freaking new chair when your chair is 15 years old. But yeah, I'll paste a link to my chair too. It's it's kind of cool. That's cool. I, I guess I'll have to pick my chair as well because it's been one that I've been using for almost a year now. And I have really enjoyed it. So I'll pick that as well. So I'll jump in with my picks. So my first pick would be my chair that I'm using. It's a gaming chair, but it's one where I found that it has really good lumbar support. And it's called the Noble Epic. So it's from Noble Chairs. And it's a really, really nice one. And what would picks be without me picking a power tool? So this power tool is a DeWalt trim router. I've been building an... If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that I've been building an arcade cabinet for the kids. And I just finished that up recently. And the DeWalt trim router was definitely an important tool for that job. And Zachary, do you have any picks for us? Can it it be a concept? Sure. Riding a bike? I've been uh, continuing to try to ride my bike to work with some bus support this winter. And um, it hasn't been necessarily the most enjoyable thing, but I feel like it's something, some little task that I can struggle against every day. So riding a bike. And then, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a little ignorant of this pick uh, process. I don't have any products to, to talk about. Can I talk about music for a second? Yeah. Uh, do you guys know the band The Thermals? Thermals? I do not. I'm not familiar with them either. They're, Are they awesome? Uh, were. They, they actually have disbanded now, but Oh, many yeah. years they uh really great punk rock band you know their their songs are really really hit the spot of like you can you could jam to them but they also you know try to explore some some concepts in their music and i was all morning this morning i was listening to um they did a bunch of live shows for that KEXP radio uh station i think it, that's washington based although i'm not sure but just jamming on the thermals. So I would recommend taking a listen. Although it's now too late to hear them play live because they did uh, did call the project completed. So Did call it. Yeah. Cool. I appreciate that. I, I love good music. And there are a lot of bands that I don't know. 
Yeah, I don't even know how people find bands these days, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I go on bandcamp.com and and just try to find and I I it's more like like when you're on uh like Twitter or something, there's just so much stuff and you're clicking 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 clicking. Oh, maybe I like this. Click click click. And then I have a, a Spotify account. I really only listen to the stuff that I know about. Of course, they do provide a recommendation engine, but it doesn't know me that well. It it thinks I like like things that I don't that I don't really like, and vice versa. So, still yeah. looking for someone to solve. Here's another idea: figure out how to take music classification to the next level. There's there's, there's some room for improvement there. <laughs> Sweet. All right, Zachary, well, it's been like fun say, talking. Obviously, you might be able to tell I've, I've never been on a podcast uh, before. So when I got this email uh, about potentially talking about Ruby Lo-Fi and other stuff, I was ecstatic. So this has been a great experience and <laughs> I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, well, we appreciate you being on here today. Absolutely. You had a lot to say. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah, well, I'm trapped in my own brain. So I try to try to get out some of what I can when I can. Thanks for sharing today. All right. Thanks, guys, so much. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.